um, what I want to do is I just want to share with you something that God put on my heart this week, and he's been putting it on my heart for the last several weeks. And um, I'm going to give you a little historical background first. I want to kind of give you a Jewish worldview at the time that Jesus came. When he came, there were several different parties within Judaism at that time. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the Essenes, and the Zealots. Those are kind of five different religious aspects, belief systems within Judaism at that time. And they all had different takes. Kind of reminds me of the Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterian and the Vineyard and the Catholic. You know, we're all, you know, trying to follow God, but we all have a different take on things. And each sect had their own belief system regarding the law, which is what they had to go by at the time. And some were very, very strict in keeping the law, and others believed in using force to keep and to defend the Jewish ideals. And the religious leaders had lots of knowledge about the law, but they were lacking in something, and that was the relationship with the Father. It was all about rules and regulations and not hardly anything about relationship. It was almost a salvation by works, if you will. Keeping the law is what would get them where they needed to be. But that really was never God's intended purpose. There were also two other groups of people besides these religious groups. There were the people, you and me. The vast majority of the people living in Israel at this time were not in any of the above listed parties. They tried to be as faithful as possible to the dictates and the regulations, but it was almost impossible for them to keep up. And they certainly couldn't keep up with the purity codes uh, that the Pharisees had. And then the next group of people is what we would call the sinners. Those were the wicked people. Those were the people who disobeyed the Torah. Those were the people who didn't honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those were the people who ignored ritual purity. Um, they could be tax collectors, just like the disciple Matthew was. Uh, they could be a prostitute, which what some people think Mary Magdalene was, who was also a follower of Jesus. So those are the different people groups at the time that Jesus came. And then there was the political aspect, the political climate. They were under Roman authority. So they were not their own independent nation, as they had been in the past. And in addition to the Jewish laws that they had to uphold, then there was the Roman laws that they had to uh, contend with as well. And spiritually, there were so many different things that were going on, as I mentioned, those five different groups, and so many laws and so many restrictions that they really couldn't even follow them. So they didn't feel like they had a, had a chance with God. So by understanding the religious and the political landscape of the time of Jesus, it helps us to understand why the religious leaders opposed Jesus so much and why the common man loved him. The text for today is Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. And we've got the uh, scriptures up here. This is, when I was having my quiet time with God this week, I'm reading in the book of Luke, and I was on chapter 13, and when I read this passage, it just really hit me. 
It says, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not the Sabbath. My emphasis up there is mine. It's not in the scripture, but I emphasize not the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And when he said this, All his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Can you see the contrast between the religious leaders and and their dictates and what Jesus had to offer? But I was totally shocked when I read this by the reaction and the response of the synagogue leader. You can't heal someone on the Sabbath? You have to come back tomorrow to get healed? Really? I mean, what if Jesus has moved on? He may not be here tomorrow. Today is the day I have. So I was was very, I was really sad about that. So it's no wonder that people were drawn to Jesus. The law of resting on the Sabbath, which is in the Ten Commandments, that day had been corrupted by the religious leaders and had expanded to the point that even healing someone was prohibited. Then in Matthew, I'm going to go through several um, scriptures that I want to show you about the compassion that Jesus had for the people. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep are pretty needy animals, and they do take lots of care, and uh, lots is required. It's not just the feeding of them, but it's caring for them. Then Matthew chapter 14, a couple of scriptures there, says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And James, I don't know if I put, is that the only one I have up there? Yeah, just 13, 14. That's all I wanted. Um, What had happened was that, first of all, let me say that after he healed the sick, this is then the story about where Jesus fed the 5,000. But, Right before this happened, you'll notice that Jesus said when he had heard what happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. He just found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. He was hoping for a little bit of time to be alone, to kind of process what had happened, because John the Baptist was the prophet who ushered in the ministry of Jesus. And on top of that, he was the cousin 
of Jesus. So Jesus was looking for a little bit of time to pull aside to process what had been going on. You know, and who could blame him for wanting to be alone? I mean, I couldn't. But Jesus set aside what he wanted to do. And he showed the people the compassion and the love of the Father towards them. So instead of doing what he wanted to do, he saw this crowd that had followed him. And when he arrived, he saw them and he just had compassion for them. So he healed their sick and then he went on and he fed their stomachs. In Mark 6, 30 through, uh, in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through, uh, 30 through 44, there's the story about feeding the 5,000 also in the Synoptic Gospels. But verse 34 says, uh, kind of says it a little bit differently. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So there's that phrase again, sheep without a shepherd. This is how Jesus viewed the people. He saw that they were harassed politically and spiritually by the religious leaders as well as by the, uh, the Romans. You know, there was nobody there to guide them, to love them, or to even care about them. And then there's one more story I want to share with you. It's in Mark chapter 1. It says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. The very act of Jesus touching this leper would bring defilement on him physically, according to the law. And he would need to go to the temple and he would need to be cleansed and do all this ceremonial stuff. But that did not stop Jesus from touching this leper. And the thing about leprosy in those days, in ancient times, whenever a lep they had a colony, which is where you were supposed to stay, but should they come into the village, they had to shout in a loud voice, unclean, unclean, as they walked through the community. Because people could not, did not want to be around them. It was ugly. It was harsh. They had sores all over them. They might have missing fingers and toes. And they felt as though leprosy was kind of a scourge from God. You know, they don't come out and, they, and say, I'm sick, I'm sick. They say, I'm unclean. And that has a completely different connotation than somebody who is sick. There was a stigma that was attached to leprosy. You know, nobody wanted to touch an unclean man. But Jesus did. And I think the human touch is so powerful. And Jesus was very aware of that. So it's no wonder that the people loved Jesus. And he drew such huge crowds. You know, there are two stories in the Bible about he fed the 5,000. And then I think there's another feeding of the three or 4,000. So that's just two stories, two separate stories of feeding people who came on the hillside. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people, especially in those days. And they would walk for days to go hear Jesus. That's how much they were drawn to him, drawn to his love. You know, the religious leaders of the day were not true image bearers of the Father. An image bearer is somebody who bears the image. It's kind of like uh, uh, Nathan was just telling me uh, after communion, two of my daughters are here and walk back and he says, Boy, Jackie sure looks like James. 
Now, I don't see that, but he did. And he, that's a, she bears his image, okay? Uh, I don't think so, but he does. So that's, you know, but that's, she's a reflection of that. Our children generally resemble us in some form or fashion. You can look at them. Siblings kind of look like one another. They are image bearers. Well, Jesus was an image bearer of the Father, not the religious leaders. They were not an image bearer at all. All they knew were rules and regulations. They had no relationship with God. There was no mercy. There was no compassion from the priests or the Pharisees. If it was one of those special days where you had to come to the temple and and, and bring your sacrifice. That's all it was. It was like business as usual. You just, you know, sacrifice the animal and go on and, you know, bless you. And there was no care. There was no interaction. There was no compassion, no concern, really, on the part of the priests or the religious leaders at that time until Jesus came on the scene. There, the people's view of God was very skewed by the hardness and the rigidness of the religious leaders. The people saw God as harsh, punishing, and uncaring. But Jesus was so different. He was a true image bearer of the Father. In John 14, Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So believe me when I tell you, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I think that scripture is really powerful as we pull all these things together. All that Jesus did pointed the people to the Father. He wanted them to know how much God the Father truly loved them and cared for them. He was mirroring God to them. You know, there's, there's another scripture that says he only did what he saw the Father doing. And boy, was the Father busy. He was healing the sick. He was calming the storms. He was causing the deaf to hear and the blind to see. He was casting out demons. He was feeding the crowds who were weary and hungry, and he was even raising the dead. That's what Jesus saw the Father doing, and so that's what he did. And that was the image of who the Father was, not these rules and regulations that the religious leaders had put down. So when John the Baptist's disciples came to him, when, when John, John had been imprisoned, they actually asked him, John sent his disciples and said, would you please go ask Jesus this question? Are you the one who was to come? And Jesus told the disciples, and he said, Go tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So you tell me, is that what you were looking for? I think it sounds better than a political, geographical nation. When Jesus brought the kingdom of God to the people, they were amazed. And you'll see this over and over in the Gospels. You'll see them say, they were amazed. They were amazed at how, not just the miracles he performed, but the love and the compassion that he had for them. 
And they were amazed at how he rebuked the religious leaders because they knew they couldn't get away with it, but this man could. They were amazed. But even more than that, they were amazed at the compassion and the mercy that he showed the lost sheep. He brought something deeply that was deeply missing in their souls, the love of the Father for his children. This is why Jesus said, if you have seen me, the grace, the mercy, the compassion, the healing, then you've seen the Father. What the people are seeing for the very first time ever is the love of God on display to them and for them. The title of my message today is actually Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. Um, it's out of James chapter 2, verse 13. It's, it is a scripture. And in the, in the passage about the woman in the synagogue that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, we see here that the mercy of God triumphs over the judgment, over the rules, over the regulations, over the laws. It's the mercy that draws people to Jesus. It's not the condemnation. People understood the judgment part. They experienced it every day as they were so burdened by the laws and the religious leaders. They were weary. And it was mercy that they were desperate for. They had been told by the same leaders that the Messiah would come and he would be a king. And he would establish a political, geographical nation for them. But really, they, they were wrong to a certain extent. That will come someday, but that's not this day, not at that time. No one knew that the kingdom of God would come and that it would look like Jesus. They expected what had been done before. They had been in and out of captivity, their whole, the whole history of Israel. Political freedom from oppression and slavery, that's what they thought. But what Jesus brought them was so much bigger and so much broader than a political freedom could ever give them. And as I was reading this scripture about this woman and just sensing the judgment, the condemnation from the, the synagogue, you know, from the, the teachers of the law about, you, you know, you don't heal on the Sabbath. I realized that we do the same thing. We, the church, do the same thing. We are those religious leaders today. We impose rules and regulations, restrictions, and judgments upon others. We see through the lens of the law. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't dance. Don't watch TV or movies. Don't hang out with the, with the, with the wrong kind of people. And we judge people by their outward appearance, their tattoos, their piercings, their clothing, their hair color. Yes, and I will confess to you that some of those things make me a little uncomfortable. It's kind of out of my comfort zone. But I will also tell you that God is taking and changing those things inside of me and helping me to get past that first physical sight of a person and see that they have a soul and that they have a spirit and that God loves them. God's love goes deeper than those things. And, and he, you know, said, you need to quit being critical and judgmental of other people. And I, and I just kind of sat there and I just wept for my own sin, my own judgment, my own 
condemnation that I had placed on others. You know, to those who are outside the Christian faith, the word Christian has almost become synonymous with bigot, racist, homophobic, judgmental, critical, hypocritical, and just downright hateful. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of a church called the Westboro Baptist Church. They are not really Baptist in name or by theology. That's just what they go by. But their website is godhatesfags.com. You know, that just breaks my heart. Because these are the people who get on the news. These are the people, for those who are outside the faith, who look at that and say, I don't want any of that. That's a God of hate. And I went to their website just to see what it looked like. And it's, it shows an angry God, a hateful God. There is no mercy. There is no compassion. That it is, it is, you know, on their website. None of that. It's all judgment. And they've done a lot of damage, I think, in representing who Jesus really is. But, you know, we've done the same thing. You and me, we have actually put black marks against the name Christian and against God by our judgments. How many times have we misrepresented Jesus around us? We've been judgmental, critical, harsh in our assessment and the way of other people live their lives. You know, we aren't called to condemn people, condemn them or their sin. This is one of Jeff's favorite verses, John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I want to read you a story. Uh, This is a book that has been really profound for me. It's called Speaking of Jesus, and it's by Carl Medeiros. He he has been a vineyard pastor in Colorado Springs, an interim pastor. He's been a missionary for the vineyard, so um, he's one of our tribe. And I love this book. It's really opened my eyes. And it's it's called Speaking of Jesus. And I just want to read you a couple of things. He came back from uh, being overseas in Beirut, uh, Lebanon, for many years as a missionary over there, talking to Muslims about Jesus. Not about Christianity, but about Jesus. Because over there, Christianity has a different aspect. Christianity is almost a political Um, statement. But Jesus is something else. And so when he came back to the States, he was asked if he would be interim pastor and so for about a year, and he said that he would. So I'm going to read you a couple of of things here. It's about how he met this guy named Richard, who owned a business in Colorado Springs. It says, during that time, I began studying and preparing my weekly sermons at Poor Richard's, the little coffee shop restaurant used bookstore downtown. I had heard it was the toughest place in town. It's where all the gays, wiccans, and generally odd people hung out. So I thought, perfect. Sounds like a place Jesus would be. So I'll go study there. One day I struck up a conversation with Ed, the bookstore manager. I think I was buying a couple of old Philip Yancey books. And if you don't know who Philip Yancey is, he's a Christian author. And he says Christian-type books were really cheap there. And as Ed looked at my books and then looked at me, because we'd not talked before, I asked, so, what do you think about Christians? It was hilarious. 
I'll never forget the look on his face as he tried to be nice to his customer in front of him. Well, uh, yeah, good, no problem, he muttered, looking a bit sheepish. I pressed him further. Come on, tell the truth. Well, there was the one time that they threw a brick through the window, and when they talked bad about us on the radio, and, and then they preach against us outside, and it was like the dam broke when he knew that I really wanted to hear. And when he paused, I said, where do you think Jesus would be if he were here in Colorado Springs right now? Focus on the family, he said, kind of questioning. And if you don't know who Focus on the Family is, Focus on the Family is, is really a wonderful Christian organization. I've listened to them for 20 or 30 years, and, and they love Jesus, but they're, they're in Colorado Springs. But, you know, his, his thinking is that Jesus would be at Focus on the Family, right, where all those other Christians are. And he was obviously, he felt a little bit unqualified to answer that question. I slapped the countertop he was standing behind and made a ding sound and said, nope, wrong answer. You know where Jesus would be, Ed? Right here at Poor Richard's. And I'm trying to follow him. So I try to come where I think he would be. I went on to ask if he'd ever noticed me reading the Bible in the corner. Ed said that he had and was surprised but he didn't want to ask about it. I told him I prepared my talks there every week for the church that I preached at on Sundays. He was so confused. Then I asked him my favorite question. I said, Ed, if Jesus came into this room right now, I mean physically, he was here, who do you think he would prefer to go hang out with, me or you? Like everyone else, he got the wrong answer. He said it would be me. I hit the counter again and made the negative bell sound and said, Ed, you're not doing too well here, buddy. You're zero for two. Jesus would for sure go home with you. You need to read the book, bro. What book? The Bible. The book about Jesus. It's all in there. He was always making religious people angry. The ones who thought they owned him and all the truth. Because he kept hanging out with people they thought they were, because he kept hanging out with people that they thought were inappropriate. The sinners, the lepers, the prostitutes, the Samaritans. Ed, Jesus would choose you. I felt so moved as I saw his response to this shocking assertion that I walked around the corner, or walked around the counter, and I put my hand on his shoulder. Ed, Jesus is for you. He's not against you. He actually likes you. It's my type the religious ones, who need to be careful lest we find ourselves on the very opposite side of Jesus. Well, Ed was so uh, amazed, I'll use that word, at the things that he heard Carl say. He said, man, you have got to meet Richard, who was the owner of the store. So uh, he does meet Richard. And so this is, it's now 10 years later, and he's having an interview with Richard. And he says, to Richard, he says, so how do you describe yourself in one sentence? Well, it wasn't really one sentence, but it's, he says, I'm a small business owner, former city councilman, was the vice mayor of Colorado Springs, gay rights activist, was the outspoken voice against Colorado's amendment to, in the early 1990s, an environmentalist activist, socially liberal, but fis fiscally fairly conservative. 
have served on the board of the National Gay and Lesbian Foundation run by Tim Gill. I was their token straight person. I'm happily married to Patricia and have no kids. Are you a Christian? No. Culturally Jewish. From the ages of 5 to 13, went to Hebrew school three to five days a week, attended all the weekend services at the synagogue, had my bar mitzvah at 13, but totally rejected Judaism and religion in general as a superstitious, silly idea. And I saw a lot of reverse discrimination from my Jewish people towards other. We were always better than them. I had always expected more from my Jewish community towards others and was disappointed by what I saw. Give me a story or two of a negative interaction or experience you've had with Christians or Christianity. Well, I showed The Last Temptation of Christ at our private theater in Colorado Springs and got evicted and had several bomb threats, then a bunch of death threats for showing it. Then, because of my active support for gay rights in the Amendment 2 debate, I had so many phone calls at home, um, at home threatening to hurt or kill me and or my wife. I had a brick thrown through the window of my downtown restaurant, and written on the brick was said, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. A group was formed called Citizens Against Richard Scorman. People would protest outside my shop yelling at us while carrying a cross. When Christians have seen me on streets, they have told me God was angry with me and that I was going to hell. But I can still say that most of my personal interactions with Christians have been positive. People have always felt comfortable talking to me about these issues from both sides. In a sentence or two, describe our friendship. I tell others that you are my open-minded evangelical friend, strong values but willing to listen. Interesting. You've probably been the Christian you've probably been the Christian in my life that has been most gracious to me. In fact, even though I've lived in Colorado Springs most of my adult life, you were the first person to ever invite me into an evangelical church. In fact, you had me share a few words there. We both laughed at this memory as everyone was slightly freaked out that Richard Scorman was speaking from the church, speaking from the front of the church. It was an awesome experience. In fact, I think our friendship affected me so much that when I was asked to give the main speech at the Fallen Firefighters Memorial after 9-11, I talked about the ways of Jesus and that if he lived here today, he might be a firefighter. And I took a lot of flack from both sides for saying that. Some Christians said, how dare Scorman talk about Jesus? And some of my friends couldn't believe I brought up Jesus. When you think of the person of Jesus, what first comes to mind? The intrinsic value of all. Total forgiveness, love, kindness, giving, 100% positive. It's the religion of Christianity that I don't like, not Jesus. Then one more paragraph or two. Um, Carl had been invited to kind of teach a, a series uh, on uh, event evangelism at the local college. And uh, a church was hosting it. And so they're at a Monday night session, and he decided that he wanted to um, invite Richard to speak to this group. Because this he'd been speaking about these very things, about how people don't really understand 
Christianity because they don't really understand who Jesus is. So he invites Richard to come and speak. He says, I brought him to the next class and I introduced him right from the start. Listen up, everybody. I'm going to divide up the class time and allow a dear friend of mine to speak to you. Some of you will recognize him, but for the benefit of the rest of you, I'll introduce him. There was a slight hush when Richard stood up and came to the front. This is my friend Richard, I began. He is the vice mayor of Colorado Springs, a prominent businessman and owner of poor Richard's downtown. A slight buzz came from the class. I could see heads turning, people whispering. Richard is not what you might call a Christian, I said, but nevertheless, he's one of the most Christ-like people I've ever met. He is sincere, he has integrity, and most of all, he has a deep sense of compassion for people, particularly the gay and lesbian community of Colorado Springs. Because of this, he has become something of a target to the conservative evangelical community. Some people have even gone so far as to throw bricks through the, the shop windows with nasty notes attached. Some of the anticipation, uh, a sense of anticipation and something else, excitement perhaps, swept over the class. I'd like Richard to take a, the first half of the lecture tonight, and I want you to be respectful and attentive, okay? I sat down, and there was a hush when I did. The entire class seemed to be holding its collective breath. Thank you, Carl, said Richard from the podium. Sir, a hand rose from the middle of the class. Yes, Richard responded. I held my breath, ready for anything to happen. The man stood up, wiped his face with his hands, and he began. I want to apologize to you. His voice began to crack. Oh, that's really not necessary, Richard said. Yes, it is, said the man. It's necessary for me. I have judged you in the past. I thought you were a bad guy. I took part in the slander and the mudslinging. Look, that's okay, Richard tried to say. No, sir, it's not okay. Jesus taught us to love our enemies, and he taught us not to judge. Until I started taking this class, I spent my entire life fighting against people and policies. I fought against the homosexual movement, and I said and did things that were not right. I have disobeyed Jesus by judging you, and I wanted to say... The room was dead silent. You could almost hear people blinking. That I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? The man's voice cracked. Well, <clears throat> uh, Richard's face colored. He fingered his collar. I could see his throat working, trying to say something. But he was quiet for a minute. Finally, he spoke. And I could hear the strain in his voice from where I sat. I forgive you, he said. Later, as I drove home, I could feel exhilaration pumping through me. Only Jesus could make an exchange like that happen, and he had. We are a lot like some of those people that were taking that class, passing judgments and I'm a lot like that. And God called me to repent of that. James, would you put the song up? 
I had specifically asked Jeff if he would um, sing this song this morning. Form us. Form us, make us, mold us and shape us to be like you, move to action, full of mercy and compassion. Our hearts say, yes, Lord, come and take control. In us, come have your way. Come form your heart, O Lord Jesus, your heart in us. Move us, lead us, send us, release us to the broken, to the hungry, to the outcast, to the weary. We want to love the things you love and hate the things you hate. As your heart is formed inside us, may we learn to walk in grace and extend the hand of mercy to set the captives free, bringing freedom to the prisoner, bringing hope to the blind, bringing hope to the blind can see. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what Jesus brought. And I think God is calling us to bear that image. That mercy triumphs over judgment. I have asked Jeff to come on up and lead us in our ministry call this morning. Stand up. I think you can still hear me. I don't know if yeah. I need that thing. Turn this off. Do, you, do I need that? Do you hear me? I don't know. You're yeah. a little loud.